time you first tried to crack open the Bible? Like maybe you're like, it was this week, things were crazy, and I was like, I'm going to try reading the Bible. Or maybe you were just sitting in a hotel room, and you're like, I'm really bored, and you open up a drawer into the Bible, and you're like, I'm going to try reading this thing. Or you were like, you know what, I'm going to start getting into Christianity, spirituality, I'm going to try reading the Bible and see what it's about. Um, if you were like me, the first thing you did, you were like, oh, you start a book in the beginning, flip it open to Genesis, let's start reading this thing. I remember my mom, she started getting into um, church when I was young, I was about six years old, I was given my first Bible, and I was like, I love reading, so I was like, let's open this thing up and see what it's about. Open up page one, I'm like, what is this? You know, I start reading, I'm like, what is going on? I couldn't get into it. Um, what did you think the first time you ever opened up the Bible? If you remember that, you started reading. What did you think? Confusing. Yeah. It was a King James. It was a King James, yeah. That was what was given to me too. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Like difficult vocabulary and you can't understand like the times. Yes, yeah, difficult vocabulary and you're like, this is so different and alien to what I'm experiencing today. What else? No pictures? No, I like the pictures. Oh, you like the pictures? Yeah, the version I was given had six pictures in it, like three in the Old Testament, three in the New, and I would just look at those pictures, and I'm like, maybe I'm getting something from this, you know, like, because I can't read it. Um, I remember reading Genesis for the first time, and I'm like, cursed fruit, talking animals? Is this a Disney movie? You know, like, that's kind of what it felt like. I was like, is this just a Disney story? Is this Snow White? They're like talking to an animal, there's a cursed fruit. Is this a divine word for my life? Or is this just a Disney movie that someone made into a really dry, confusing book? Hmm. Um, when I first opened the Bible, and I started trying to read in Genesis, it was so thick and so confusing. I'm like, there's a whole group of people in this world who find this book so moving and compelling, who are in love with this book. What am I missing? And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you're like, I try reading this thing, Especially if I start on page one and I'm like, what is going on? So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to go through every verse. We're going to talk about it. We're going to think about it. We're going to figure out how should we be reading it? How should we make sense of it? How does it lay out the entire story of our world and our race and our own lives? Just a few short pages. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Um, but first, some background. Genesis is a Hebrew word. It means in the beginning, which comes from the first words of the book. It's part of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Our Jewish friends refer to this as the law, which collected with the wisdom books and the prophets is their Bible, what we call our Old Testament. Our Jewish friends call their sacred scriptures. Now, Jewish tradition credits Moses as having written it. However, there's some things that happened before Moses. And it also records in these first five books um, some things that happened after Moses' death. So there was probably some traditions that he accumulated and then someone who helped write what happened at his death at the end of the five books. Moses lived about 1,500 years before Jesus. So you're looking at a, you know, 3,500 to 4,000 year old passage of ancient literature that we're reading today. See, 4,000 years old. That's, that's crazy to think about. Um, so, now this is important as we think about how to read and understand and interpret Genesis. This was not written to us, but it is written for us. 
I mean was that when Moses sat down to write this, he wasn't like, man, someday there's going to be this church in Havertown in the United States, which doesn't exist yet, in North America, which I don't even know is a place. <laughs> and uh, they're going to be asking some questions, so I should write this to answer those questions. He didn't do that. What he did do was say, hey, all these Jewish people who have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, I just set them free, and I'm leading them to a promised land, and they have no idea of their history, who they are, what they're about. They've had more Egyptian influence than they have any kind of Hebrew influence, and uh, they're asking questions about who they are and where they came from, and that's why I think that this book still has meaning for us today, but we have to remember it wasn't written to us. Moses didn't sit down and say, man, Darby's going to be needing this, and I'm going to address the things that she's asking about. Um, I think that this book, like all of scripture, has a divine spark, and that God can speak through it and use it. I think it's still for us, but it's not written to us. It's not written in response to the questions that we have about our origins. Like, I ask some questions when I go to Genesis about some modern scientific questions, and Moses didn't even have a category to think about those questions. It was written to ancient Israelites in response to questions that they had about their origins. And so one of the things we have to think about is what questions were they asking, not what questions did I ask. The other important piece we have to realize is that this was originally written in Hebrew, and it's been translated into English. You say, Alex, why do we care? It's translated, right? We've got the English. That means the same thing. Well, the Hebrew language is a poetic language, Well, modern English is greatly influenced by the Enlightenment. It's a more precise language. So when you read something in the Old Testament, you're like, I don't understand it. Why do they talk like this? It's a more poetic language. They use a lot of sound and sense and imagery. They're trying to spark your imagination. In English, we're like, I want the hard, or the hard, cold facts, right? Like, we want to know what's true, what's not. Just spell it out for me. And Hebrews are like, the Hebrew language wants to take you on a journey. It wants you to uh, spark your imagination. So, for instance, in Hebrew, I might say, there are ravens in my wife's hair. That's a very poetic way to say, I, I wrote this really terrible poem to her when we were dating. It's like, the ravens in her hair, you know? Um, that doesn't mean literally there's birds in her hair, right? I'm saying she has dark hair. Dark like raven's hair. Um, in English, I might say something like she has black hair, or if I was trying to be very scientific, I could say her hair isn't on the visible spectrum of color, because her hair actually is the absence of light, a hue that we call light. Like, very scientific, you immediately know what her hair looks like, right? Both are creating an accurate image of my wife's hair. One is not a lie, and one is not true. They're both true, right? But one is a poetic truth, and one is a more scientific truth. A poetic truth triggers your imagination. A scientific truth is trying to trigger your information processing. Okay, so when we look at a Hebrew passage, when you're reading the Old Testament, there's a reason, right, we like reading the New Testament, because it's written in Greek and translated into English, and the Greeks were philosophers. They started to think a little bit more like we do. Um, but the Hebrews were very poetic. It's a reason that we have struggled with the Old Testament, because they're thinking and writing very differently. So, all that to be said, Moses didn't write this book to answer our modern questions from scientific minds. He wrote this book to answer ancient questions from poetic minds. And so that means when I approach this, I have to think about it a little bit. So, let's jump in and see what he did write. Genesis 1-1. Um, it's going to be real hard to find today's passage if you 
open up your app or your Bible, right? So let me do this first thing. Well, once you get past all the stuff that public is about. First thing, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it for today. We're just doing one verse. We won't always move that slowly through here, but there's a lot packed into these 10 words in this verse. Um, anyone ever see a J.J. Abrams movie? He's a director, writer. Okay, just the nerds in the room. Thanks, guys, uh, for supporting me. J.J. Um, Abrams doesn't always do this. I like this movie, by the way, the majority of them. Um, but a lot of times he starts in the middle of the story and you have to play catch up. And if you've ever watched a movie with somebody else who maybe is like a real talker in the movie, and they're like, who's that? I'm like, I don't know, I'm watching the movie with you. Like, we're in the same place. And then they're like, what's happening? I'm like, I don't know either. Like, we have to watch and find out. They're like, why is he doing that? I'm like, I just told you, I do not know. You have to wait. Like, he jumped us into the middle of the story, and I don't know what's going on yet. We have to watch more to find out. Um, anybody watch the TV show Lost? Uh, I really love Lost. That was a J.J. Abrams show. Remember how it starts out? A guy wakes up in a bamboo forest. There's a shoe hanging on a bamboo branch. He's in a suit. He runs out of the forest. He's on a beach. He looks around. There's a plane crash. And you're like, what if a world is going on? Who is this guy? Why is he in a bamboo forest? Why is there a shoe hanging on a branch? Why is there a plane crash? Why are they on an island? Where are they? I have all these questions, right? It immediately hooks you into the story because you have questions and you want answers. That's exactly what Genesis 1-1 See, I have all these questions when I read it. Like, who is this God? Where did he come from? What's his name? Why is he creating? What was he doing before this? Nothing. We're just jumping right into the story. There's no background like, okay, so let me tell you something about God. He knows everything. He's all powerful. He's been around forever. He has no beginning. It doesn't do any of that. It doesn't lay any groundwork. I'll try not to punch it. Um, it doesn't lay any groundwork. It just jumps us into the middle of the story like J.J. Abrams. And that's by design. That's not a mistake or an accident in the Bible. It wants you to immediately start asking questions. The Hebrew text is designed to make you question and imagine Dream and think and wonder and wrestle with what's written. Um, what's some of your questions as we read Genesis 1 1? What immediately do you have questions about? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who's God? Who is this guy? Which God? You know, our world has a lot of gods. Like, which God are we talking about? What else? That, that was the only question. How did he create? Yeah, like, so. Why did he create it? Yeah. I have so many questions when I read this. And in fact, if we really start thinking about it, we could spend the rest of the day asking questions just about this one verse. And that's by strategic design. Now, Hebrew scripture is designed as Eastern mystery literature. So, Alex, what's that? We've got to remember we're Westerners, and we think like a Western educated person thinks. We want things to flow from in chronology, from start to finish. They want to trigger our imagination. They want us to ask questions. They want us to search out the mystery. We don't write like this in the West. They design their writings to be read, reread, and reread in order to be understood. So they'll write a statement, and they're like, you're not gonna get that if you read the whole book. Did you ever see a movie where you're like, as soon as you watch it, you're like, I gotta go back and watch that again? 
because I know now I'm going to see some things I didn't see. That's how Hebrew writers wrote. That's how the Old Testament is written. That's why you pull up a passage, you're like, okay, today I'm supposed to read this, and you're like, I have no idea what just happened there. Yeah, they want you to read the whole book, then come back and read this, then reread the whole book and come back and read this, then reread the whole book and come back and read this. This is why Jewish young people would go to school and their, their job was to memorize the Old Testament. Because they're like, as you read it and reread it and memorize it, you're going to start to see what's there, what's hidden on just the first time reading. And so Genesis 1-1 Genesis is written in such a way, it's like, you're not going to get this unless you read the whole story and you come back and read and then when you read the whole story again, when you come back and read this, you're going to see even more. They write a passage with the expectation that you have to read the whole thing in order to understand what we just read. Um, I watched Tenet, the movie, the Christopher Nolan movie, and uh, immediately upon watching it, I was like, i got to re-watch it now to kind of understand what I just watched. That's such a, that's how the Hebrew Old Testament works. Um, this is why even secular scholars who reject the Bible as having any kind of divine spark or divine touch will say it is perhaps the most brilliant work of ancient literature. The text is constantly making hyperlinks to the past and to the future, and it's never spoon-feeding. And what's also fascinating is the text was written across thousands of years and had many different authors, and yet they're all interweaving with each other. They're all doing this thing where they're like, you read it, you don't get it, read the whole thing, and now you understand how it all fits together. The more you read, the more you understand what you're reading. It's a book that wants you to discover it, if you really want And I think a lot of people don't discover it because we're like, just give me the easy cliff notes version. And the Hebrew authors who wrote the Old Testament, and a lot of the New Testament was written by Hebrew authors in Greek, so they used the same way of thinking. They want you to work for it. They want you to wrestle with it. They want you to read it and reread it and dream about it and meditate on it and think about it and constantly ponder it and see connections and draw conclusions and pull together two passages. They want you to see the depth of it. If you just look at it at the surface, you're like, man, this confusing, this is a mess. And then all of a sudden, as you spend more and more time with it, sometimes I'll be reading and I'm like, I've never seen this. That's it. Beautiful, crafted piece of literature. So, let's get back to the text. The first words are in the beginning, and I imagine this is like the Star Wars title crawl. Um, and so I was like, I could talk about this, or I could just make a Star Wars title crawl for the Bible. So that's what I did. Should make this beginning short. <laughs> Bible. You know, this is what introduces you to 
the story that you're about to jump into. Sometimes in the Star Wars movie you jump in, but there's this title product that you started. Everything starts with in the beginning. So what does it mean by the beginning? Now scholars say that this is not the Hebrew word for the beginning of everything. This is the, the Hebrew word for a beginning. That's interesting. Like we have to think about like, so Moses is saying this is a beginning that I'm going to talk about. What beginning is he talking about? It's the human beginning. He's trying to give the Israelites who just came out of 400 years of slavery, he's like, I want to tell you about your starting point as a human being. I'm not going to tell you about God's starting point. I'm going to talk about your starting point. If you read the story, you know that some things have to have happened before this, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit, as we read on in the story, they've existed before this. This isn't their starting point. This isn't God's starting point. He's been before this, but it doesn't tell you that here. Um, as you read on in the scriptures, especially you get to the New Testament, you find out that the Father, Son, and Spirit live in a community of love before this, loving each other and living in perfect harmony. And they thought that that existence was too good to keep to themselves. They're like, let's create other beings to enjoy our love. But we don't get any of that here. Um, we know that at some point God created angelic beings at some point before this because they show up in the story later. Like, where did these angels come from? They're not listed here. When did they get created? Well, apparently before this. There's apparently some things that happened before this point that is the beginning of the human story. Um, this is giving the Hebrew people who just left generations of slavery a starting point for what it means to be human, what it means to be a Hebrew, an Israelite, this special people that God says he's going to use as a platform to send his special person, the Messiah, to bless the world. Then we get the next word. In the beginning, God. Now we could spend the rest of, uh, probably the rest of our lives just sitting right here on this one word. Like I preached a whole series uh, last year on God. What do we mean when we say God? Who is he? What does that mean? Like, what does that look like? God is the starting place, the reference point for everything that's going to happen and everything that's going to come after this. He's the reference point for um, the Hebrew word used here is the word Elohim. You'll probably see that I use that in my title crawl. Um, Elohim is a title, not a name. It can be used for a ruler or a lord or a god. When there's false gods in the Bible, it says the Elohim God or the Elohim Ashtara. Um, it's just a term that means a ruler, a lord, a god, some type of higher up being. And Elohim started the story. That's what this word says. Our human story started with Elohim. And you're like, what's an Elohim? Where do they come from? What is their deal? Is this the only one? Are there others? Are the other Elohims mentioned in scripture? Are they real Elohims? Like, we're left with questions right now. If this is all we have is this one verse, it's meant to make us ask questions. Remember, it wants to spark your imagination. It wants you to want to find out. Um, so, now, as we read on in Genesis 1-3, through we're going to find out the name of this Elohim, that he's not just an Elohim, but he actually calls himself the Elohim of Elohims, um, which is a fascinating thing that we'll get to. He essentially says, I'm a god of gods. Like, I'm a lord of lords. You know that classic phrase? That comes from the Hebrew, what's translated Elohim of Elohim. And we're going to find out next chapter, as we read on, that his name is... YHWH, if it's translated in English, that's what it looks like in Hebrew. 
how do you say that? We guess that it's pronounced Yahweh, but we don't really know. The Jewish people stopped saying the name of God um, before Jesus came around because they were so concerned about saying his name in a way that would dishonor him that they're like, we won't call him that. We're not going to call him by the name that he's revealed himself. We're just going to call him Lord God. We're just going to give him the respect and title of the Most High, but we won't call him by his proper name. So chapter one's going to introduce us and say, an Elohim turned this whole thing. Chapter two's going to say, oh yeah, that Elohim, his name is Yahweh. He's not just some being out there. He's a personal being with a name, and this is how he interacts. And so immediately I'm like, starting points? What are they about? Um, I want to wonder and imagine that's exactly what this text is trying to do. Moses has skillfully written this so that when people read it, they're like, in the beginning Elohim. I want to find out what, why did Elohim create? That's the next word we see. In the beginning, God created the first thing we see this Elohim doing is molding things, shaping things, bringing order out of the chaos, um, seeing the potential in a lifeless lump of clay. He's using poetry language, and you'll see this over and over again in the story. He's like, this Elohim is taking some raw materials, and he's beginning to shape things. The word for create here is to shape. He's like taking, he's like, I'm going to make this. I'm going to design these things. I am going to shape and then we get our next word, the heavens and the earth. Now, to be clear, how I've always read this is, oh, he made his palace, his sky palace, his cloud city, you know, and then he made our planet, right? The heavens and the earth. Um, well, I believe that's true. That's not what this passage is actually saying. The Hebrew word here is for God created the sky and the land. Remember, this is Moses writing to the Israelites who have left Egypt, and he's, he's zeroing in on their experience, their starting point. Um, when I think about heaven, I immediately think of a sky palace in another dimension, but the word here in Hebrew is actually sky. That's how the word heaven is often used in the Old Testament Jewish culture. Uh, it was typical Jewish language for the sky. Take, for instance, Psalm 19.1, you've probably seen this stuff on social media somewhere, right? The heavens declare, proclaim the glory of God, the sky display his craftsmanship. And we understand, like, oh, they're talking about the sky right there. It's the sky, it's the universe, the, the space, the stars, that declares his glory. That's how the Hebrews use the word. This story is going to do laser focus on humans, so the camera is going to stay pinpointed at our world at very real experiences. So, as it was written to the bewildered slaves who have spent 400 years getting soaked in Egyptian culture, they're walking out for the first time as free people, and Moses is saying, hey, this ground you're walking on, the Elohim who made you, the Elohim who set you free from Egypt, he made this land you're walking on. As you look up, and you're like, oh, look at the beautiful skies. It's like, the Elohim who set you free from Egypt, he made that sky. That's what he's telling the Elohim who rescued you from slavery and made the ground in the sky. So what kind of Elohim is he? Well, it says right there in verse 1, he's a Elohim of new beginnings. In the beginning. A fresh start like, hey, you just got out of slavery and now you're free. You have a new peace on life as a people. An Elohim that um, 
as revealed in Jesus, is a God of fresh starts and doing new things. He's creative and forgiving. He doesn't let you be defined by what happened last. He's always ready for what happens next. He likes new beginnings. Now, there's a word the New Testament authors pick up on and they use for this idea of God being a God of personal new beginnings. It's called redemption. You're not defined by the worst of your past. You're defined by his best for you. God doesn't ignore our worst mistakes or pretend they didn't happen. He intends to reclaim them for good. Once again, this is pottery language. I work at the Art Center um, Monday through Friday over at Haverford, and um, we have mule thrown down in the basement. And so sometimes I'll watch them down there, and they throw this lump of clay on there, and they start molding it and shaping it as it's spinning, and it starts turning into something really nice, and then sometimes there'll be a mistake. There'll be an accident. There'll be something that happens and it's ruined, and you'll see a crack in it, and it'll actually fall apart. And the part is just garbage and throw it against the, the side of the building. Instead, they pull that mistake back in and shape it back in. The mistake doesn't go away, it gets molded back in, and then they make it. The mistake actually became a part of the finished product. The finished product looks beautiful. Ah, looks so good. And like, oh yeah, that mistake is just molded back into the clay. It doesn't go away. It becomes a part of who the, uh, or what the um, molded thing actually becomes. That's redemption. Doesn't ignore our worst mistakes, pretending it happened, reclaims them for good. When, when we consciously or unconsciously choose chaos, he molds it back into order and beauty and goodness because he's God of new beginnings and fresh starts. We need a fresh start in 2021 do-over, come learn how to live and love an abundant life from Jesus. He's an Elohim that loves fresh things. Today might just be the day that we all look back on and say, in the beginning, God created a new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that the starting point for everything is you. Thank you that you are a God of fresh starts. You're a creative God. You're a God who makes things new, who takes our worst mistakes, our most broken pieces, and you don't say, well, those are no good for anything. You find a way to make a beautiful stained glass out of the broken pieces of our life. And I pray, Lord, that we will remember your goodness, and we'll remember that you're all about fresh start, the new beginnings, and redemption this year. Give us wisdom as we study Genesis 1-2.